from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Wednesday edition, Joe Biden sees the clear title of frontrunner yesterday, bringing his campaign back from the political dead as voters in six states cast their ballots in the Democratic presidential primary. Just over a week ago, many of the pundits declared that uh, this candidacy was dead. Now we're very much alive. Bernie Sanders says he is still in the race, but is he? Pollster Scott Rasmussen is here with a look at yesterday's primary results in just a moment. Also, a hearing in the House Government and Oversight Committee today on the Chinese coronavirus, where Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, testified on the projected lethality of the virus. Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey is a member of the committee, and he joins us later here on Washington Watch. I'll also get him to weigh in on Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir asking churches not to meet, but not telling or asking any other public fil- uh, facility to close. We'll talk about that. And the Trump administration defending the unborn in court. In a rare move, the U.S. Department of Justice is intervening in a court battle in Ohio where the state is defending the unborn. Eric Dreven, Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, is here to explain. Also earlier today, I joined the leadership of the International Committee on Nigeria to, at a press conference to draw attention to the alarming situation in Nigeria. More than 350 Christians have been killed since the beginning of just this year by terrorist groups. And the Nigerian government has done nothing. Prior to the press conference, we met with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We'll talk about that later here on Washington Watch. Website, TonyPerkins.com. If you happen to be on Twitter, it is at T. Perkins. All right, uh, yesterday was uh, Super Tuesday 2.0. Joe Biden building uh, continues to build his momentum after key victories um, in uh, Missouri and Michigan. He now leads in the delegate total, but Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders says he's uh, he's not getting out of the race. Joining me now to talk about the election results and what we might see going forward is pollster and publisher of ScottRasmussen.com, Scott Rasmussen. Scott, welcome to Washington Watch. Tony, it's always great to be with you, and, you know, it's, it's a fascinating election season. A, a month ago, we would have been expecting to be having this conversation, uh, and right now I feel compelled to say, yes, Joe Biden is the front runner, but, but this thing isn't necessarily over. Um, if the race continues as we expect, and if there are no surprises, Joe Biden's up by about 150 delegates. We'd expect he'll do well in places like Florida uh, going forward. He should win. But, uh, you know, I, I was a hockey goalie in high school. And when your team went into the third period with a lead, you just wanted the game to end. Uh, the only thing that could happen would be bad. You would blow the lead. And that's where the Biden camp is right now. Uh, they don't want to have a one-on-one debate with Bernie Sanders this weekend. They don't want to give more chances for their candidate to stumble or for Sanders to uh, create some storyline that will damage uh, Biden in the general election. So they're very nervous. And quite frankly, we've already seen Mike Bloomberg ruin his candidacy with a bad debate performance. Uh, it could happen again. 
Well, actually, it's interesting you say that House uh, Majority Whip uh, Jim Clyburn told uh, NPR that the Democratic National Committee should, quote, shut this primary down uh, so the Biden doesn't get himself into trouble and into a situation that he cannot overcome. You know, I I understand why Representative Clyburn would say that. Uh, And obviously he had the most effective endorsement in recent political history to uh, put uh, former Vice President Biden in this position. But there's a a flip side to that. If Joe Biden doesn't debate Bernie Sanders, he's going to have to debate President Trump in the fall. Um, And as a Democrat, you know, you might want to see if there's going to be problems, you'd rather have them exposed right now. Uh, And I remember very clearly in 2008, uh, Barack Obama got much better at debating as the campaign wore on. If you watched him early on, he wasn't very good. Uh, but after time after time of sitting down with Hillary Clinton, he improved. And so, I, you know, I while I understand the instinct, I think uh, it's to the benefit of the Democrats to have these debates go on. So, Scott, you're saying that um, while it's leaning in the Biden direction, it's not a done deal yet. That's right. And uh, I think after the way things have unfolded earlier this year, every political prognosticator ought to be a little cautious in, in declaring things finished. Uh, but, yes, I, I, the numbers are clear. If if there are no surprises, Joe Biden will be the nominee. He has more delegates. He's getting a larger share of the vote. Um, he The states coming up look good for him. Uh, I think the danger is a little bit from the debates and other gaffes. And also, there there may be a sense of buyer's remorse setting in. You know, the Democrats coalesced very quickly around Biden because there was nobody else to coalesce around to stop the threat of, of Bernie Sanders. Uh, so we'll see how enthusiastic they remain in the coming weeks. You know, I, I just can't help but point out the irony here. You know, the, the Democratic, uh, not necessarily the party, but the left, always, you know, criticizing Republicans as being the party of old white men. I mean, does anybody else see that? The two last men standing, two white, old white men for the Democratic Party. Well, I never, ever would have expected to go into this year saying Donald Trump is going to fight for reelection as the younger candidate in the race. Uh, you know, it's just... That wasn't anywhere near the uh, the top of my consideration because the Democratic Party in particular uh, is depending for uh, on younger voters and a more diverse coalition to provide their energy. Uh, and Joe Biden is about as far removed from that as can be. Now, um, you, you and I both have been around politics a long time. We know that uh, a day is like a lifetime and a, and a lifetime a day in politics. And so anything can change. But what are the things that right now we potentially see on the horizon that could could change the, the entire political landscape? Well, the biggest curveball of all, and it's far more than a political issue, is the coronavirus. I mean, this is a political health uh, issue and should be addressed that way. It's having a huge impact on lots of people's individual lives. You know, people aren't traveling for weddings and other events, uh, sports events, maybe played with nobody in the stands. So this is um, something that is impacting every American. What we don't know is what will the situation look like a month or so from now? Uh, if in a month we know that uh, things are, you know, there, there was a bad virus and things are returning to a sense of normalcy, uh, that will be one scenario. If it still appears to be growing and, and creating growing concern, that's another uh, answer. I think the other impact, you have a question about this, 
is what what impact does it have on the U.S. economy? Uh, right. We know it's having some kind of an impact, but we don't know how lasting the impact will be. Uh, I, I know you may not have pulled this, but just checking, you know, so far we're two, uh, not even quite two weeks into this. But how does the president seem to be doing in terms of his response uh, in the eyes of the American public? Well, it won't surprise you to know that uh, Democrats think it's a bigger crisis than Republicans. Uh, the president's job approval doesn't appear to be shifting all that much. So I think we're still in a phase where you see what you want to see. Um, and again, if we move through it fairly quickly, I don't think it will have much of an impact politically. But this is one of those situations, uh, you know, that, that can change overnight. Yeah. Uh, the, the politics has a, of, uh, a way of being very responsive to these things and a lot of unknowns in the world in which we you live. Know, yeah. Tony, you know, we talked last year saying the biggest question, if the economy held up and if no, there were no other curveballs, the president would be favored to win re-election. Uh, that is still absolutely true, but we're right in the middle of a potentially big curveball. So uh, it's, it's going to be worth watching in these next several weeks to see what happens. Well, and we will have you here to talk about it as well. Always great to talk with you, Scott. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Tony. All right, uh, Scott Rasmussen. To find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com, and you can uh, follow the links over. You know, the uh, this is, it's, it's more than a curveball. This is this is quite significant, one of the biggest events that have, that has occurred. And I, I look back to, uh, to 2008 when... Right before the election in the fall, the stock market kind of crashed when McCain was running. He was favored to win. That gave Barack Obama the edge. So these these things could be major, uh, create major shifts politically. Uh, one of the things we have to be uh, informed, but also engaged and not deterred by many of these things that may come at the last moment. Joining now to talk uh, more about this is the Vice President of FRC Action, Brent Kylan. Brent, welcome back to Washington Watch. All right. Uh, we, we were talking about yesterday's election. Not uh, not too much activity from the standpoint of the uh, faith, family, and freedom vote yesterday. That's right. You know, one thing um, worth pointing out is uh, the uh, the enthusiasm of the voters. That's one thing a lot of people have been watching uh, to try to figure out, you know, where are we compared to four years ago? And um, the, uh, the the numbers have actually been really interesting. If you look at Michigan, which a lot of people viewed as maybe the most key state right. yesterday, there, there was an increase on the Democrat side. Um, in 2016, they had 1.2 million voters, but they were up to 1.4 million. And yesterday um, had obviously a, a very competitive primary. But if you look at the Republican side, I mean, in, in all of these states where we have apples to apples comparisons, it looks like the turnout did go up yesterday. But on the Trump side, there were some very interesting numbers as well yesterday, Tony. If you look at Michigan, uh, he got over 637,000 votes. By comparison, President Obama when he was running for re-election in 2012, had 174,000 votes. If you look at Missouri, uh, President Trump received four times the number Obama received in 2012 and then double what President Bush received in, in uh, 2004. Uh, his numbers were almost double in Idaho what he received in 2016. So it looks like he's got some great enthusiasm so far as well. Interesting point out, Michigan, uh, Sanders narrowly pulled off an upset in that state four years ago against Hillary Clinton. So for him to lose Michigan last night was uh, was a big, big setback for for Bernie Sanders. I, this is the point we need to underscore that 
uh, I'm projecting that there's going to be a strong voter turnout in the 2020 election. We saw in 2018 a historic record of turnout in a midterm election. I think it's going to it's going to continue on into 2020. Now, I think it's going to be a little harder for Biden to uh, to tap into the enthusiasm that Sanders had uh, of of his support if Biden is in fact the nominee. But this is where every vote counts. And mm-hmm. and, right. and and what do people yeah. need to be doing to be ready? You know, there are a number of resources we're really encouraging people to make sure you are equipped with. You can find all of these at our website, which is frcaction.org. And then if you go to the Voting Resources tab, there's a lot of resources you can find there, again, frcaction.org, to equip yourself for both the primaries and the, the federal elections. You can register to vote if you're not registered um, through the uh, the Voter Guide tab. We're in a coalition with iVoterGuide. You can find all of the state deadlines. So when do you have to register? When, when's the deadline for your primary? When are the deadlines for your general? We have party platform comparisons and all the other type of stuff you need to be prepared for the uh, the elections this year. It's a great resource for people to tap into. You can go to TonyPerkins.com, follow the links over, but be registered, be informed, and be engaged. Brent, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. All right, Brent Kylan, Vice President of FRC Action. All right, when we come back, a hearing today in the House Government and Oversight Committee on the Chinese coronavirus. Dr. Anthony Fauci was uh, testifying before the committee. Congressman uh, Thomas Massey, who is a member of the committee, was there for the hearing. He joins us with the details next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. A lot more still to come. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. 
You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. In testimony before the House Oversight Committee earlier today, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a key member of the Trump administration's Corona Task Force, Coronavirus Task Force, says uh, we should be taking this virus seriously as he addressed uh, the committee. Uh, what, what does that mean for the American public? Well, here's a clip of what he had to say. The seasonal flu that we deal with every year, has a mortality of 0.1%. The stated mortality overall of this, when you look at all the data, including China, is about 3%. It first started off as 2 and now 3. I think if you count all the cases of minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, that probably brings the mortality rate down to somewhere around 1%, which means it is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. Joining me now to talk more about this is Congressman Thomas Massey, who serves as Kentucky's 4th Congressional District Congressman. He is on the House Oversight and Reform Committee and was there this morning for uh, Dr. Fauci's uh, testimony. Uh, Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Your sense of uh, the testimony today before the committee? Well, I mean, we have to take him at his word. I think it's important that they get the truth out there. Um, one, one of the things that I think they were reluctant to say in the beginning but was obvious is that this is going to spread throughout all of the United States. I think in the beginning when they were stopping the planes from China and Iran and then Italy, I thought that was a, a good idea. But they were acting as if they were going to contain this virus. And so they, in, in messaging, they hurt themselves because they knew eventually it would get into communities and there would be spread within the community. So they shouldn't have the perception that they could stop it from coming to the United States. And now that it's here, I'm glad they're being honest with us. I've seen a lot of stuff in the news where it says, oh, it's no worse than the flu or that the regular flu is worse than coronavirus. Well, it just doesn't seem to match the data. So I'm glad that Fauci was was being upfront with us today. Well, Congressman, I appreciate you. I know you guys just finished a vote, so you just stepped off the House floor, so I appreciate you taking time to, to join us. I think that the point here clearly is that this is uh, uh, more lethal than the, the, the flu. The, the, the question still to be answered is how widespread will it be? Now, he says it, uh, it also spreads quicker than some of the previous uh, corona-type viruses that we've had. So it's very important, uh, and I, I wonder how to what degree he talked about the testimony today talked about um, individual preparation and protection, what the American people need to do to protect themselves against this virus. Well, I, I think you need to plan for if you're going to self quarantine, for instance, what would you need to stay in your house for a couple of weeks without going out? Or let's say you're an elderly individual and you know that it's prevalent in your community. It might behoove you to stay home for a couple of weeks until it sort of moves on through the community. And also, I, I think for the elderly, look, I think we're eventually – I've been told this in briefings – that we're eventually all going to get exposed to this virus. 
And so what they're trying to do is slow down the spread so that they can first come up with treatments. And then eventually they may come up with a vaccine because it's likely that this virus will be with us for at least two seasons. Right. And and so there may be time to come up with a virus and, and give it to high risk individuals. Frankly, I'm uh, probably, you know, at the age of 49, I'm in a medium to low risk category and I probably wouldn't get the uh, you know the 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 vaccine myself because there's still going to be risks associated with the vaccine. I don't know what the vaccine is, but anytime you have something new, you don't know what all the complications may be. So even if they come up with a vaccine, I think it's going to be selectively applied. Uh, what's the uh, the sense of the did they give you a, a, a kind of a projection on the kind of the, the bell curve here? How when we think this is going to peak? Uh, and you mentioned I've uh, speaking to health experts. It's projected that it's it's going to come back again. We may see it again next fall. But what's the sense in terms of the uh, the peak? When might might we see that here in the United States? I don't know when the peak's going to be, but I do predict that this is based on the briefings I received. At some point, they're going to quit tracking it at the border. In other words, the, the efforts to screen people coming into the country won't make much sense if we if it's prevalent in the community already. It would make more sense to take those resources and use it to treat it within the community. So I, I predict we're actually probably a few weeks, only a few weeks away from not even trying to screen it at the border because it will be so prevalent in the communities. Well, I think uh, the the individual preparation is going to be critical. Also, the fact that uh, this is mostly spread. I'm interested if they talked about this in the testimony, that it's not so much airborne, although you still can receive it that way, but it's more transferred from um, being on surfaces. And so it's very important, hand sanitizing and making sure that you keep surfaces clean. Well, like I can tell you myself, uh, we, we have dozens of people who come up here every week to meet with us, with each of us. They come in groups. I have offered, and pretty much everybody has obliged and taken me up on it, to do our meetings by teleconference or by telephone here in Washington, D.C. And people have been polite and understanding about that, even though they've had their trips planned to D.C. for many weeks. It doesn't really affect, you know, um, the meeting. If we do it by phone, they can get their point across just as well. So we're doing that. My office has had a no handshake policy for two weeks now, um, and people are getting used to that as well. Yeah. Very quickly, before we run out of time, your governor uh, in Kentucky there, Governor Bashir, has asked churches not to meet, but as of uh, yet, no other public gatherings has he requested be canceled. Is there something going on here? (laughs) Well, I think it's sort of hypocritical because they haven't canceled schools, but he's asking them to cancel churches. I really think that the governor, and and I provide this earnestly, uh, should follow the lead of the churches and and televise their sermons. Well, the the schools should make it optional. And instead of shutting schools down when they get to 80 percent attendance, let them keep going if the parents want to keep the kids home. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's always good to have the churches meet in situations like this and pray. Um, yes. We need prayer. Um, Absolutely. And and people can self they can decide for themselves. Right. And and if you're elderly, stay home. If you're if you're sick, stay home. Self quarantine. But um, I just think if you're going to have a, a policy like that, it should be across the board. Congressman Absolutely. Massey, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me on. I'm going back in to vote. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Con- uh, Congressman Thomas Massey, as I said, stepped off the, uh, the floor to vote. All right. Don't go away. Coming back next, the Department of Justice defending the unborn in Ohio. I'm Tony Perkins, and you are listening to Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is at T. Perkins. All right, Iceland's Down syndrome population continues to fall every year, and the country takes great pride in their fight against Down syndrome. The problem is the Nordic country hasn't cured Down syndrome. They are simply aborting babies who test positive. Now, some are fighting against this ideology, uh, as an Ohio law uh, does, which outlaws the abortion of babies with Down Down syndrome. Uh, And it it, it was passed, but it's being challenged in Ohio's Sixth Circuit. But the unborn has a champion and the Trump administration. Joining me now to talk about it is Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, Eric Dryden. Eric, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. I'm happy to be here. So the, the Justice Department is taking a, a rare step in intervening in this case to argue in favor of this law on behalf of the state of Ohio, which prohibits, as I said, uh, abortions for babies diagnosed with Down syndrome. Is that correct? Yes, Tony. Well, I'm, I'm here and I'm calling in from Cincinnati, uh, where I'm here uh, on behalf of the president and Attorney General William Barr. And we are here to defend the Ohio anti-discrimination law, which uh, prevents uh, abortion providers from performing abortions that they know are because of a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. And so we we filed a friend of the court brief with the United States Court of Appeals here, and we appeared today before the full entire court to, uh, to defend uh, the Ohio law. Uh, on behalf of the president and the attorney general. I think we're having a little difficulty there. We, we dropped out uh, on, oh. on part of that. But I, the l- let me a- ask you this from a standpoint. Why does the administration see it important to step into this case and defend this Ohio law? Well, there are several reasons, Tony. Uh, first of all, the Ohio law promotes the equal dignity of all those individuals who live with disabilities, and it protects individuals, including those who live with Down syndrome, uh, from discrimination and prejudice that they often experience. It also uh, protects against a slippery slope to race and sex-based abortions, um, and it separates women from coercive abortion providers who very often Uh, And there's evidence in the record in the case that some doctors will try to coerce women to obtain an abortion after they receive uh, a diagnosis uh, of Down syndrome in their unborn child. And so we felt uh, when we looked at this, number one, that it was important for the United States Court of Appeals here in Cincinnati to understand that uh, we are with the state of Ohio in this case on behalf of the president and the attorney general. Uh, and that uh, we we fully support the right of the state of Ohio to protect the unborn in the way they've done it. Talk, talk for just a moment about the uh, the oral arguments presented today. Your 
Yeah, well, today the the, uh, the the entire United States Court of Appeals here in Cincinnati, the Sixth Circuit, uh, held an argument uh, um, where it heard from the parties of each side. Um, there were 16 or so judges there, several of whom are appointees of President Trump's. Alexander Malgieri uh, from the Justice Department uh, presented the government's case, the, the the administration's case. I was in the courtroom at the time. Uh, we felt that uh, we were able to make all the points that uh, we wanted to make uh, in defending the Ohio law uh, and, and the protection of both the unborn and the women who, who uh, may receive a diagnosis that their unborn child has Down syndrome. And you know, we'll see what the court does. We're optimistic uh, about uh, our chances. Um, we need a majority vote, so we'll need nine of the 16 judges to vote with us, uh, and we're hopeful that they will. But overall, we felt the court was receptive yeah. to our point of view, and uh, and uh, we're, we're eager to f see what happens. Well, Eric, I, I don't think people realize the pressure that often comes to play on a uh, on a mother when these tests come back. I, Twenty years ago, so I authored legislation when I was in office. Uh, dealing with this issue from a standpoint of insurance companies denying coverage once one of these tests came back positive for Down syndrome, which then, in many cases, the parent only saw abortion as a way out. So th there's significant pressure at play here to drive women toward abortion. So quite significant that the administration is stepping in here, defending the unborn, and and, and more importantly, defending, I mean, that's important, obviously, but, but standing with the state of Ohio. I think it's critical. Yes, I agree on all points. Um, first of all, uh, when women receive uh, a diagnosis of Down syndrome, there are times, including in the record in the case, that some portion of abortion providers will try to coerce at least some women into aborting their unborn child as a result of that. And very often what happens is that women hear a one-sided presentation of the facts, uh, and we felt that it was important for us to weigh in uh, and to make the point, uh, merely by appearing, but also through the legal arguments we've made, that people who have Down syndrome have lives that are worth living, uh, they are of equal worth right. to, to everyone, and that human life is sacred. Right, and not to mention that oftentimes these tests are inaccurate when they come back. They can be inaccurate. That's correct. That's correct, actually. But the other thing, the other thing, too, Eric, we believe... Eric, oh, we're, we're up against... No, go, go ahead. Very quickly. We're up against a break. The final point is the law protects the women as well against this kind of coercion. That's all. Yeah. Uh, Eric Drivin, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And, and it's great, once again, to see the Trump administration out there uh, defending the unborn and their mothers. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, folks, uh, more Washington Watch to come on the other side of this break. Uh, earlier today, a press conference on what is happening in Nigeria with Christians. Just since the beginning of the year, 350 Christians murdered by terrorists. We'll talk more about that. Don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org chemicalabortion. 
China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreamed sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. This is Washington Watch, and I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us on this, um, let's see, it's Wednesday. It only seems like it's Friday. Maybe I wish it was Friday, but it's Wednesday. So glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com, if you're on Twitter. At T. Perkins. Hey, by the way, we were just talking with uh, Eric at the Department of Justice where the Trump administration defending the unborn in court. I mean, taking the the rare action of actually stepping into a court case in Ohio to defend a pro-life law from the Buckeye state. Now, uh, this is what I want to drive home with you about the the importance of elections. Elections have consequences. And we've seen this administration, the Trump administration, not only talking about the sanctity of human life, not only talking about religious freedom, but actually taking bold steps to defend those things. And when you're having conversations with friends, I I want to give you the information you need to show what a difference an election can make and why it's important that we have a president who's pro-life, who's pro-religious liberty, who is, uh, you know, working, advancing the things that we talk about each and every day right here on Washington Watch. So here's, a, here's, here's something I have for you. If you would like to have a list that you can share with your friends that's dated, detailed on everything this administration has done when it comes to life issues, when it comes to religious liberty issues, all of these things that we care about, faith, family, and freedom, I'll send it to you. Here's what you need to do. Text me this number, 51555. That's 51555. That's 51 and three fives, 51555. Text actions. That's plural, actions. And I will send you a document. It's about five pages long. PDF. It's a a document that, that, again, date, time, everything this administration has done shows shows you the policies that this administration has enacted, not not talked about, but enacted. So, again, text me actions to 51555. 
And this is something you can share with family and friends to, to show them how important elections are. All right, speaking of religious freedom, no administration in my lifetime has done more to advance religious freedom than this administration. Well, earlier today, I joined the leadership of the International Committee on Nigeria at a press conference to draw attention to the alarming situation in Nigeria. Now, I know that there are problems around the globe. I just got back from Sudan. I've talked about that on the program. And, in fact, earlier this week, the Sudanese prime minister, who I met with last week, was the subject of an assassination attempt. Uh, the, the, the world is volatile. Right now, we're pulling our troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, we've got northeast Syria. We've got Turkey. We've got all these places. But Nigeria is is a critical place, and what is happening there is not getting a lot of attention. More than 350 Christians have been killed since the beginning of this year alone by terrorist groups, and the Nigerian government has done essentially nothing except watch. Now, joining me now in studio to talk more about this is Stephen Inada. He is the executive director and co-founder of the International Committee on Nigeria. And Rich, Dr. Richard Ekebe, he is the founder of International Organization of Peace Building and Social Justice. And they both join me in studio. Uh, Stephen, uh, Richard, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having us. Thank you, sir. Uh, let, let's just start. Um, in fact, I didn't mention this, but prior to the press conference, we uh, we met this morning with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Um, and I know we can't go into all the details of what we talked about in the meeting, but let's talk about the, the urgency of the moment and why you traveled, uh, Richard, to... Uh, America today. Now, now Stephen, you operate out of the United States. You're, you're tra- drawing attention on this full time. But, Richard, you traveled here today to be here for this meeting. How urgent is the situation? Very, very urgent. Very urgent. Um, yesterday they killed eight people uh, in a place you would normally not associate with such violence. Uh, last week, um, they killed some people in southern Kaduna. The week before, they killed 51 uh, in the same southern Kaduna. Before that, in Taraba State, in Adamawa State, you know, every 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 day you wake up with uh, a new set of killings. You, you say they. Who 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 is they? Oh, there are many groups. There is. Um, uh, there is the Boko Haram. Uh, they are operating the extreme northeast. Uh, there is uh, Ansaru, which nobody has heard of um, as much as we have all heard of Boko Haram. Uh, but Ansaru is uh, it's, it's actually equally as deadly as Boko Haram. And, and they kill with impunity. They smash babies' heads. They, they disembowel pregnant women. They do all kinds of very wicked and evil things. Uh, and then we have um, um, uh, Islamic State of West Africa, uh, which is um, a combination of various forces that came out of Libya. Uh, and then we have the Fulani headsmen, 
who are devastating the states across the middle belt of Nigeria. So there, there are many groups expressing themselves with one common objective, violence, wickedness. There, there seems to be another common denominator, Stephen, and that is the, the target for most of this violence. Uh, it, they, they are Christians. Yes, sir. Um, the pattern of this uh, violence trend, even from the northeastern part of Nigeria, and if you remember, uh, Boko Haram declares an uh, uh, Islamic uh, caliphate in Nigeria, and the essence of that is to annihilate Christianity. So, um, and then the pattern, even with Fulani militants, anywhere, if they sack a village, if they kill people, they occupy the such towns and villages and host their flag. And then uh, they also go about destroying churches, schools, and clinics. So these are similar patterns that these uh, groups exhibited. Uh, the the population in Nigeria. Nigeria is the most populous African country, 200 million people, and and roughly based upon the the numbers I've seen, it's it's 50 50 50 percent identify as uh, as Muslim, 50 percent as Christian. Is that correct? Well, I usually tell people who care about this uh, demography and all these uh, fault lines, that uh, it's not totally correct. Yes, the population of Nigeria is in excess of 200 million, but uh, the, in our census, religion has not been used. So now if anybody is coming with... That, and that was deliberate, yeah, by yeah, the way. Right. Yeah. And then that's happened in other countries yes. as well. And if anybody uh, comes to tell us that Nigeria is divided evenly, 50-50, it's not totally correct, because even uh, some people never knew that uh, in Brunei State, which is adjured to be a Muslim state, they never knew that even though uh, up to six local governments are predominantly Christians, and when you remember the Chibo guests, they are Christian guests who were abducted right, right. in 2014 by Boko Haram. So uh, I would rather talk more of... Uh, Nigeria Christians, I know from denominational data uh, that we have in Nigeria, we have over 87 million Christians. But the point is that you're not a minority in the country, but yet you uh, Christians are being targeted. And is the desire, Richard, to drive Christians out of the state of Nigeria? Uh, it would seem so, um, particularly out of the northeast and the north central. Uh, <clears throat> it will seem as if there is a deliberate um, effort. I, I was in uh, Plateau State about two, three months ago, and um, Plateau State is in the middle of the country, uh, so one of the most beautiful uh, parts of Nigeria. Um, and uh, I, I got into this village, uh, which in a, in a very strange way had no person living there, and I asked the guy who had taken me there, I said, where are the people? He said, they have run away because they are afraid of the violence. And he said to me, in this community, there are 10 villages and towns, and only three of them are occupied because there is a systematic attempt to get Christians off the land. And these people actually bring um, their own people 
from wherever, even from outside Nigeria, to come and populate these places. Why is the Nigerian government not doing anything to protect its people? Now, I, I, I know a little bit about this uh, from uh, the case of Leah Sherabu, uh, uh, one of the uh, of actually 105 girls that were abducted about two years ago. All were released except her. Uh, because she refuses to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ, so she's still being held. We just marked the two-year anniversary of that abduction. Why is the government not doing anything to protect uh, the the, the Christians? Um, It's it's difficult to say because government exists to protect the inhabitants of a land, uh, whether they are Christian, Muslims, or non-believers in anything. Uh, but strangely, uh, in our case, uh, government is mostly mom. And uh, a very strange thing happened again uh, recently. Uh, they are trying to absorb people who are so former radical and militants, and they, they claim have been de-radicalized. They want to bring them back into society and absorb them into the military. And and we're saying, how can you do this when the people who have been driven off the land, you have not taken care of them? There are IDP uh, places all over the place, and um, homeless, um, widows of many children, you have not taken care of them. You are taking care of the guys who oppressed and killed their husbands and wives and children. So it's a very... <clears throat> It's a very unusual government that we, we have seen in Nigeria. Now, some are saying uh, this is not a religious issue. This is an issue over resources. The Fulani uh, herdsmen you talked about, those are, uh, those are cattle and herdsmen, uh, and the Christians primarily farmers, so they say, well, we just need the land, and so it's a, it's a fight over the land and resources. What do you say to that? Um, it's because they don't understand the issues. And... Um, because the issues manifest themselves in various ways, it's easy to confuse them. And people deliberately do so sometimes. Uh, they, they, they make it look as, oh, okay, this is a, these are skirmishes between communities and uh, these are communal clashes. It is not. At the, at the core of it is religious. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time, I have two more questions for you. One is... I'm hearing the state of the church in Nigeria is strong, that that we're seeing revival in the Christian churches there, that people are being drawn to the Lord in a very strong way, and that uh, there's a a strong movement taking place there. Is that that accurate? Um, Yes, uh, but my yes is qualified. Um, A church that is insular is not fulfilling the full gospel. Um, Every church should be both internal and external. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus didn't send us to ourselves. He sent us to the world around us. And most of the churches in Nigeria are active, vibrant, praying, uh, worshiping as they are. Uh, it will seem as most of our churches are, are insular and inward-looking rather than uh, outward-looking. Let's talk about, uh, in, in our f- a couple minutes we have remaining, the, the, the work of the International Committee on Nigeria. 
Stephen, the focus and, and what you are trying to, to, to accomplish. What, what, what's the ask of the American government? What, do you, what, 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 what needs to happen to help the people of Nigeria? Thank you. Um, because uh, like what we have uh, established in our discussion today and even before today, before U.S. government, is that uh, the atrocities that are committed in Nigeria are blacked out. Nobody seems to uh, hear or understand the plight of Christians in Nigeria. So International Committee on Nigeria uh, was started to bring to limelight these atrocities being committed in Nigeria, human rights violations, persecution against Christians. And by that extension, Dr. Richard Ikebe uh, started off uh, the arm, which is called PSJ, in Nigeria and the UK. So what we do is to uh, let people know and also ask government in their, poli- in their foreign policies to see what Nigeria government is doing by not protecting her citizens. Then now, our special ask to the U.S. government is that, having learned from the experience of uh, Senator John Danford, a special envoy to Sudan, we want to replicate that uh, similar uh, uh, opportunity in Nigeria by asking uh, the, the U.S. President, President Trump, to appoint a special envoy to Nigeria and the Lake Chad region who have requisite authority of U.S. government by administering and gathering intel to actually address this issue. Where are the arms coming from? Who are the sponsors? All right. Uh, Stephen, Richard, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank Thank you very much for having us. And folks, to find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com, and you can follow the links over. We're out of time for today. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Until tomorrow, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 